I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. This is a special We the People episode on the state of the First Amendment. We will dive into the constitutional issues surrounding CNN versus Trump. That's the lawsuit that CNN correspondent Jim Acosta filed against the president and other White House officials after his press pass was revoked. And we'll also touch on lawsuits involving the president's Twitter feed, as well as possible charges against Julian Assange. Here to tell us about these developments in the First Amendment and to illuminate the arguments on all sides are two of America's leading experts on the First Amendment, and we're so lucky to hear from them. Katie Fallow is a senior attorney at the Knight First Amendment Institute who litigates First Amendment and media cases. She was previously a partner at Jenner and Block and the deputy director of the Bureau of Consumer Protection at the Federal Trade Commission. Katie, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. And David French is senior writer for National Review, a senior fellow at the National Review Institute and the previous president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, uh, a great defender of the First Amendment and a returning champion on the We the People podcast. (laughs) David, it's wonderful to have you back. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, let's jump right in. Katie, let's begin with the facts. There was an important hearing in the CNN case recently and a ruling by the judge, and it focused on a case called Cheryl versus Knight from the D.C. Circuit in 1977, uh, which held that the protection afforded news gathering under the First Amendment guarantees of freedom of the press requires that access to White House press facilities not be denied arbitrarily or for less than compelling reasons. So tell us about the Sherrill case, what the judge held in the CNN case. It was not a firm First Amendment ruling, but a due process ruling, uh, and and explain what uh, the judge's reasoning was. Yeah, so in the Cheryl case, actually the Cheryl case spanned, it looks like almost uh, over a decade where uh, Cheryl, the reporter who was a reporter and a White House uh, correspondent for The Nation magazine, applied for a press pass security clearance from the Secret Service and he was denied the pass. And the Secret Service refused to tell him the reason why he was denied the pass. The pass obviously would provide him access to go to press briefings at the White House. So he kept on trying to find an answer. Eventually, the ACLU got involved and uh, they filed, first of all, a freedom of information suit. And at one point at the end of that, it it sort of started apparently in the Johnson administration, but then went into the Nixon administration. And I guess at some point, John Dean sent a letter to the um, reporter saying, well, you were you have a assault conviction in Florida at, at some point, And that's why you were denied the pass. Uh, the ACLU got involved. They filed a, a lawsuit against the Secret Service and the D.C. Circuit in its decision, as you said, recognized that there was a First Amendment right of access to the White House, what they called the White House press facilities. And um, there was no allegation in the Cheryl B. Knight case that um, the reporter was denied the security pass or the uh, the press pass for uh, based on the content of his speech or viewpoint. And the court sort of in passing uh, suggested that that would be a real problem. But still, the court, the D.C. Circuit said that there, you know, the White House does not have to 
open its facilities or its property at all to the press. But once it does, and it creates these press facilities, this space for the press to be, it, as you said, cannot deny a press pass to an otherwise, quote, bona fide journalist uh, for arbitrary reasons or for less than compelling reasons. And the D.C. Circuit said um, on on the First Amendment argument that compelling, uh, you have to have a compelling argument because, I mean, excuse me, a compelling government interest if you are to do something that would infringe on the reporter's right of uh of speech or right of to engage in news gathering. So um, we have that decision out there, and in there, as, as I said, the district of uh, this DC Circuit did recognize a First Amendment liberty interest, and then went on to say that because the reporter has this interest in getting the press pass, uh, he is also entitled to due process, which meaning notice um, of the rules that govern access to a press pass and an opportunity to respond if he is. Uh, denied or if, if there's a decision that he's going to be denied that interest. So flash forward however many years, you know, several decades to uh, the current situation with CNN and after um, the contentious press um, conference on November 7th following the midterm election where there was this back and forth between CNN's correspondent Jim Acosta and the president and a White House intern attempted to take back the microphone from Mr. Acosta, and he refused to relinquish it. So then the White House offered a series of um, different and sometimes conflicting uh, justifications for why it had revoked, it directed the Secret Service to revoke Mr. Acosta's press pass, which has basically never happened as, as far as anyone has reported. So CNN filed the lawsuit, and in the hearing last Friday, um, the district court, uh, Judge Kelly, who's a a Trump appointee, uh, granted CNN's request for a TRO and ordered that the White House return the, what they call the hard pass, kind of, um, not a permanent, but, you know, ongoing press pass of access to the White House. And it, the, in his, this was a decision given from the bench, and Judge Kelly said it was interesting, basically said he suggested that he doesn't agree with the, uh, the D.C. Circuit's decision in Cheryl v. Knight or may not like it, but that he is bound by it, that it is longstanding precedent of the D.C. Circuit as a district court judge. He is bound by it, and he based his grant of the request for a temporary injunction on due process grounds. He, the judge said, I'm not going to rule on the scope of CNN or Jim Acosta's First Amendment claim, but I'm just going to hold that here uh, he was apparently given no process at all. And so you cannot revoke that would irreparably uh, cause him constitutional injury and you can't revoke the press pass based on those grounds. Thank you so much for that great introduction. And we, the people listeners, if you check out the transcript of the hearing that Katie referred to by Judge Kelly, uh, which took place on November 16th, you'll have a sense of a district judge in real time balancing the equities in a very 
uh, moving way. And David, is it significant that uh, Judge Kelly is a Trump appointee who ruled against the evidence? Does that suggest that the law is clear? And then, as Katie suggests, it was a due process ruling holding that Mr. Acosta had the right to uh, notice uh, and to rebut the government's reasons and a written decision. Um, what happens next if he's given those opportunities? Uh, can his press pass be revoked or does that trigger the First Amendment arguments and how do they play out? Yeah, I think that uh, given the Cheryl V. Knight decision and the, and the, the, the clarity of that decision, I think uh, it, it should be, I think that a, um, a judge, whether they are appointed by Clinton, Bush, Obama or Trump would have reached the same result. Um, so in the sense, legally, I don't think it's significant that a Trump appointee judge rendered this decision. But politically, I do think it's significant. I, I think it's something that should make uh, many of the re very reflexive defenders of the administration stand up and say, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> maybe this action did violate controlling legal authority. So I do think there is some real significance there in that it came from a uh, to the public that it came from a Trump appointee judge. But, uh, you know, any district judge should be bound by that D.C. Circuit precedent, of course. Uh, so I, I think that one of the things that I think is uh, really important for, for folks to understand, and this is something that is, um, I think, going forward, going to be interesting to see how it works out, is that uh, – Essentially, what we have here is a as an administration that has given an ample amount of evidence that it particularly relishes a fight with CNN, that it and the president himself particularly re relishes a fight with CNN, and he particularly relishes a fight with CNN on the basis of what he perceives to be CNN's viewpoint, and that's going to be important as the case goes forward because one of the cornerstones of First Amendment law is a as a generalized, you know, we can get into the weeds and, and talk about the exceptions to this, but a generalized prohibition against viewpoint discrimination. Uh, and, and given the abundance of evidence of, the, of Trump himself and how much he dislikes CNN because of CNN's viewpoint, it's going to be tough if this case moves on to any kind of viewpoint discrimination analysis, I think, for the administration to prevail. The other thing that I think is interesting about this, um, if if you have a cornerstone of of the First Amendment is prohibitions against viewpoint discrimination, well, a cornerstone shorthand definition of due process under the Fifth Amendment is notice and an opportunity to be heard. In other words, notice of the rules that apply against you and an opportunity to have your case or your side heard as the as in in any sort of whether formal or informal adjudication of those rules and that's something that i think is going to be really difficult for the administration to prevail on as this case moves forward because what were the rules that jim acosta was supposed to have notice of uh, we know that the administration appears to be in the process of formulating some guidelines at present but formulating guidelines in the present and applying them retroactively has some additional due process concerns. As a general rule, you can't um, you can't punish a person under rules that did not exist when they engaged in the alleged misconduct. So, you're running up against a couple of elements of the First and Fifth Amendment that I think are going to be um, that is going to be difficult for the administration to overcome. Thank you very much for that.
Katie, as you think about the substantive First Amendment claim, uh, in other cases, we've seen courts refuse to look to the president's motive. The Supreme Court in the travel ban case refused to find a illicit motive of religious discrimination and still uh, instead expect, accepted the uh, laws facially valid. Here, the government will argue that it had safety concerns, that Jim Acosta menaced an intern. Um, how, are, are courts more likely in First Amendment cases to look for actual motive? And in that sense, do you agree with David that they might well conclude that the real motive was to discriminate against CNN or not? Walk us through what the substantive weighing of the First Amendment cases would be and put on the table any other relevant Supreme Court precedents, including perhaps two cited by the uh, complainants, New York Times and Sullivan, and the Hustler Magazine case, which talked about the importance of robust political debate. Yeah, as David said, a cornerstone of First Amendment case law is that the public officials and government officials cannot seek to suppress speech or um, censor speech based on viewpoint. And it's a very fundamental First Amendment principle. And in the context of uh, public forum law, which is where the court, Supreme Court and other courts have frequently applied this rule against viewpoint discrimination, as they call it. Um, the Supreme Court has made clear that if a government purports to be um, trying to uh, uh, censor speech or exclude someone from a, a public forum, and they say it's based on a uh, a rule of conduct or on a rule that has no relationship to the speaker's viewpoint or the content of the speaker's speech, that the courts will look beyond, behind that, the purported justifications, to ensure that it's not a pretext for impermissible viewpoint discrimination. So I think that is um, uh, one basis one ground on which this would be different from the muzzle ban uh, case where the court was looking at just the letter of the uh, executive order in that case and determining whether that was fully justified under the president's authority. But here, if there is a question whether or not the president or other people at the White House were motivated by Jim Acosta's uh, viewpoint or the content of his questions and, you know, the video of the press conference is obviously available for everybody to see. And I think there's both that and also the sort of longstanding history, uh, as uh, David said, of a feud between President Trump and CNN and President Trump's uh, repeated attacks on CNN particularly based on CNN's uh, supposed viewpoint. So I think that if uh, either Judge Kelly or another court were reviewing this and Acosta brings a claim saying, I was excluded because of my viewpoint and the content of my speech, that it would be necessary under uh, the relevant case law to have factual discovery to determine what was the motivating um, what motivated their, the re revocation of the hard pass. And New York Times v. Sullivan and Hustler, I think those um, cases are extremely important cases in First Amendment law, and both, I think, supporting the view that public officials and public figures uh, have to put up with a fair amount of 
challenging viewpoints from other speakers. So famously in the Hustler um, Supreme Court case, which didn't involve a public official, but a public figure of Jerry Falwell, the court held that even very um, coarse, crude speech uh, that that many people would find extremely offensive, which was a parody of, uh, uh, I think, I think it's Jerry Falwell I'm speaking, right? Yes, um, uh, for sexual experience, that even in those instances, the First Amendment protects all manner of speech and that people who are public figures or public officials that are out there in the world essentially kind of have to have a, a tough skin and put up with a, a fair amount of speech, even that's offensive because of the important principle of the First Amendment protecting sort of creating a bubble around protected speech to ensure that um, it, it is not unduly censored. Katie, you and Knight have argued that uh, the Trump Twitter lawsuit raises many of the same issues as the CNN case. Uh, in that case, Knight claims that the plaintiffs were blocked from the president's account because they posted tweets critical of the administration. And you also argued the ban was a violation of their First Amendment right to free speech and free assembly. And a judge has preliminarily agreed with uh, the Knight Foundation. Uh, judge Naomi Rice, a district judge, uh, on uh, in a recent decision held that we hold that the portions of at real Donald Trump's account, the interactive space where Twitter users may directly engage with the content of the president's tweets, are properly analyzed under the public forum doctrine set forth by the Supreme Court, that such space is a designated public forum, and that the blocking of the plaintiffs based on their political speech constitutes viewpoint discrimination that violates the First Amendment. David, tell us about this very interesting ruling, more about the public forum doctrine. Was it unusual that Twitter was held to be a public forum, and why was this viewpoint discrimination? Yeah, this was a fascin this is a fascinating case. It's still ongoing, uh, obviously. And it it really goes to and this this is a this is a, a, a situation where we may end up um, your two guests may end up disagreeing a bit on this, but this turns on uh, whether or not the forum was owned or controlled at Donald Trump's Twitter account being the forum and the the spaces underneath uh, in the replies to a tweet. Is that owned or controlled by the government? So if you have a uh, own, a forum for speech that is owned or controlled by the government, then First Amendment protections are going to lock in. Um, and again, going back to some of the things we've talked about before, one of the thing, one of the core fundamental First Amendment protections is this freedom from viewpoint discrimination. So if the Trump Twitter account or this particular spaces within the Trump Twitter account are owned or controlled, a forum owned or controlled by the government, this is actually a pretty easy case that blocking critics, uh, that that inhibiting critics' speech, um, prohibiting critics from sort of having the same kind of access to Trump's speech, all of those things are, it's going to be an easy case. It's going to be pretty open and shut if this is owned or controlled by the government. So therefore, I think that that's the, that's the central question. And, and where I have some disagreement with the judge's decision is Twitter so thoroughly controls our accounts. Twitter is so thoroughly in charge of our accounts that I question whether we could say it's owned or controlled by the government. I, I was I pulled up Twitter's terms of service and 
it's it's really pretty stunning. So not only can they suspend or terminate you, cease providing you with all or part of the services at any time, they can do so for any reason or no reason at all. Um, you don't have to have violated the terms of service. Twitter has a the ability to shut you down in whole or in part for any reason that Twitter wants to shut you down. So this is a, in my view, this is a Twitter-controlled forum, not a government-controlled forum. In fact, even um, the Twitter control is so complete that your content on Twitter isn't even your content anymore. For example, when you post on Twitter, you grant Twitter a worldwide, non-exclusive, royalty-free license to use, copy, reproduce all of this content in any way that they see fit. So it's a, it's a, uh, I think it's a case that's very interesting uh, to do, to see if if forum doctrine is going to extend to it into a space so thoroughly controlled by a private entity. And I, I think that will be one of the core questions as this case goes forward. Fascinating, Katie. You. And Knight argued that Twitter was a public forum. Tell us what the tests are for how to determine a public forum and why you think Twitter is one. Yeah, uh, just stepping back a little bit. First, I just wanted to also note that the judge in the case is Naomi Rice Buckwald, just in case anyone wants to look up uh, the judge in her decision. But, you know, so in sure, and in this case, we represent seven individuals, people from all over the country who, and you know, including like a sociology professor, a several writers, a doctor, and a veteran and police officer. So people from all walks of life. And the thing that they had in common was that they replied directly to the president's tweets which he uh, made using his at real Donald Trump Twitter account, which everybody is aware of. Um, and they replied directly to him and the president then blocked them from his Twitter account. And what it means uh, if you block someone is that that person there, if they're, signed into their Twitter account. They can't read your tweets and they also can't reply directly to you. And the president, in using his at real Donald Trump account, he tweets, as we all know, all the time. And in response to every single one of his tweets, there are tens of thousands of replies and comments. And those replies all appear in these comment threads that appear underneath the president's tweets. And so what we argued was that the president was using his at real Donald Trump Twitter account essentially as a virtual town hall. Um, So a vast virtual town hall where he, as the public official, was essentially standing at the front of this vast forum and speaking. And then all of the members of the audience who are the individual Twitter users can speak, make engage in their own speech and reply to him and reply to each other and discuss the president and his policies. And that discussion appears in these comment threads. And we argued that by blocking, when he uh, personally blocked them, he was essentially evicting them from this town hall. And just as a city council that is holding an open town meeting can't eject someone from that town meeting because they don't like what the person has to say, the president shouldn't be able to block people from replying to him because he doesn't like when they criticize him. So, and then David, so we made that argument that, and this is the public forum doctrine, which we've sort of talked about. And in a series of cases over the last 
30 or 40 years, the Supreme Court has recognized this, what they call the public forum doctrine. The traditional public forum doctrine are limited to essentially public parks and sidewalks, which uh, through our history, we have a long uh, tradition of allowing people to essentially get up on a soapbox and speak their mind. And it is this fundamental principle, as we've discussed, that public officials could not um, throw someone out of a park or make them get off that soapbox because they don't like what they have to say. They they can uh, develop these content-neutral, viewpoint-neutral, time-place-manner rules, like saying, you know, you can't in certain circumstances, you couldn't use a megaphone or you have to do it at certain times of the day, but you have to ensure that the government isn't using those kinds of rules essentially just to kick people out because they don't like their viewpoint. And so that's traditional public forums. But the Supreme Court has also recognized what it calls a designated public forum. So it's a non-traditional space that, as David said, is owned or controlled by the government and and where the government has opened up that space for people to engage in speech. And so if the government does that, and that, that would be, for instance, uh, you know, if, if a city council decides to have an open public meeting in its offices, it may not traditionally open up those offices to the members of the public, of the general public to speak. But once it says we're going to have these meetings, they're on Tuesdays, and you're able to speak if you're a member of the community or if you just want to address the issues we're talking about, well, that would be considered a designated public forum. And what the Supreme Court has made clear is that once again, you cannot uh, restrict people's access to that forum based on either the content of their speech or their viewpoint. So Judge Buckwald agreed with us. What she found was that although the president, his own tweets are not a public forum, that's his speech, but this quote space, what she called the interactive spaces, which are the places where people can reply directly to him. She said, those are a public forum. And when he blocked people from his at real Donald Trump account, he was operating the necessary control. So yes, Twitter in general controls the whole platform, but individual account holders, they make decisions about who they are going to block from their accounts. And because the, the when he did block people from the account, that was the action that had the effect of excluding them from this these comment threads. And that is government action that um, is subject to the First Amendment. And, you know, I, I know David brought up this question about if Twitter does retain a significant amount of control over the platform in its entirety, can that really be a public forum? And our view is that, first of all, the Supreme Court has applied the First Amendment and the requirements of the public forum doctrine in contexts where um, the government was, for instance, leasing a theater. So there was a private property owner who uh, retained ultimate control over a municipal theater, in this case involving a municipal theater's um, denial of, a, of a, the ability to, to show the play hair. Um, but the Supreme Court sort of held that the fact that it looked at the, what the government entity was doing there, and that the government entity was the one that was making the decision about whether the musical could be performed. So, it, and I think it's also important to keep in mind that if you 
conclude that um, a Twitter account cannot be a public forum, even if it's run by a government official or government entity, then all social media accounts that are owned by the government, including the at POTUS account, the at White House account, that allow people to speak, well, they could, um, if they're not subject to the public forum doctrine, then theoretically they could just go and exclude anyone they want, all based on viewpoint. And, you know, we believe that would have completely unacceptable consequences from a First Amendment standpoint. Thank you for all that. Uh, David, uh, uh, in uh, Judge uh, Buckholt's opinion, um, she analyzed the complicated cases about limited public forum including the Perry education case where the plaintiff sought access to a public school's internal mail system to distribute literature. And she stressed here that the plaintiffs weren't seeking access to the whole account, in other words, the ability to send tweets, but just to uh, get messages. And she said that because the account was controlled by a government official, namely President Trump, citing cases, including fascinatingly, and I'm on pages 40. Uh, two onward for listeners who want to geek out and read the really fascinating opinion. She, she cited the Zivotofsky uh, opinion, saying the president has a unique role in communicating with foreign governments. That was the uh, uh, determination of where the capital of Jerusalem could be. Um, she concluded that in practice, this was a limited public forum. So it's obviously a complicated balancing of equities. But what's the argument on the other side? And, and, and how, do you f- how do you think the Supreme Court might come down if they were to take up this question? I, I would actually I would be surprised if the Supreme Court held this to be a, a designated or limited public forum. I think that there is an avenue here that uh, individuals have that has nothing to do with the government. Uh, individuals could go to Twitter and say to Twitter, uh, we would we believe you as a company should make it to where public officials uh, or public figures, however you know you de- you define it, but certainly public officials and, and official government accounts do not have the ability to block um, and do not have the ability to mute, for example. And Twitter could do that and do it instantaneously and do it without any court involvement at all. And that illustrates, I think, the extent the the level of control that Twitter has here. So, for example, if the government leases out a leases out a private um, community center or a private, say, theater for a government meeting, the lease is going to grant the government a degree of control uh, over those proceedings that a um, that twi- that that does not exist when a government official logs on to Twitter or a government account logs on to Twitter. And so I think that that's going to be a, a key question going forward. And that's going to be the thing that I, I think may ultimately, because again, as I said, if this thing, if, if Twitter, if there is a owned or controlled, if this is deemed to be owned or controlled by the government, um, this case is relatively easy. Um, this is, this, there's a clear act here of viewpoint discrimination. There's clear inhibition of the ability of the of the plaintiffs to to interact. Now, it's not a huge inhibition, but there is there is a punitive action that's taken place. Um, but the owned or controlled analysis is going to be, I in my view, the the analysis that's going that's going to ultimately decide this case. And in given Twitter's absolute control, uh, given the extent to which Twitter 
can uniquely modify uh, the control that it gives to government officials uh, in what it deems, what Twitter solely deems in its own discretion to be the public's interest. Uh, I, I, I don't think the Supreme Court, even though this court is uh, relatively speech protective compared to uh, prior courts, uh, I don't think it'll ultimately rule uh, for the plaintiffs, but I, it's not cut and dried. It's going to be an interesting, hard-fought piece of litigation. Katie, your response to those uh, thoughtful observations about whether or not uh, Twitter is owned or controlled by Twitter or by uh, the president in the case of the Donald Trump account. And then I want to broaden out the question. Just this past week, Mark Zuckerberg announced plans to create a Supreme Court for Facebook. (laughs) He said that uh, you can imagine some sort of structure almost like a Supreme Court made up of independent folks who don't work for Facebook, who ultimately make the final judgment call on what should be acceptable speech in a community that reflects the social norms and values of people around the world. All of us who think about free speech are struggling with how to think about the platforms, Twitter, Facebook, and Google, in a world where they control more about who can speak and who can be heard than the president himself or than the Supreme Court justices. Um, After your reflections on public forum doctrine, what do you think of the idea of a Supreme Court for Facebook? Yeah, I mean, um, I I think you'll not be surprised if here that I disagree with David's ultimate uh, uh, prediction for how the Supreme Court rules on this, but I think that, and I think it's for uh, several reasons. First of all, nothing in the case against the president for blocking people on Twitter turns on anything that Twitter did. It's not a case against Twitter, it's against the president and his aides, and it has, it focuses specifically on the access that the president controls to be able to reply to his Twitter account. And the president made those decisions just as anyone else who's an account holder could make. Um, And so I think it would be entirely consistent with the public forum doctrine, as the court has made clear that when you're determining whether it is a public forum, you look at the, and what constitutes the public forum, you look at the access sought by the speaker, and here the access is the ability to reply to him. Um, And I also think uh, if you hold that the fact that Twitter retains some control over the platform generally, as I mentioned, there are so many things where the government, for instance, if the government maintains an interactive website where it allows people to post comments on a website, which courts have held that that would be a designated public forum, often the websites are hosted by private companies. I mean, you know, obviously the Internet itself is is owned by the people who carry the signals are owned by private companies. So if you hold that the fact that a private property owner provides the um, communications technologies that people use in this day and age to engage in speech and engage in these virtual public forums, there's sort of no stopping point to that. Um, Turning to to Facebook having a Supreme Court of Facebook, um, you know, I think that uh, Facebook itself, and just as in our case of Twitter, they are not considered state actors, so they are not subject to the First Amendment, and to some extent they can um, organize their platforms as they see fit. But I think as what we're seeing is that Facebook is struggling with how 
to determine um, what speech is allowed on its platform. And, and they are actually addressing many of the same thorny problems that the courts have had to grapple with over the years. And uh, it's easy to say, well, we don't want X kind of speech, or we all think that Y kind of speech is bad. But when you actually try to define it and um, adjudicate it, it is it is pretty hard. Thanks for that. D- David, your thoughts on whether Facebook should create a Supreme Court, and uh, given the fact that it is creating one, what criteria should the Supreme <laughs> Court have? What should the appointment procedures be? How do we guarantee judicial independence? And who should uh, serve on it, aside from you and Katie, who I nominate immediately? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I, I think I, I actually am somewhat heartened by it in this sense. I think we've reached a point where nobody trusts Facebook anymore. <laughs> and so if, uh, you know, I, the folks on the right are convinced that uh, Facebook to the extent it has any discretion at all, disfavors conservative viewpoints, is more apt to view conservative viewpoints as as dehumanizing or hate speech, um, and has a strong progressive bias against conservatives on the platform. A whole lot of progressives look at Facebook after the 2016 election and what it knew about Russian interference and uh, Russian accounts or Russian-sponsored accounts and the way in which Facebook uh, seemingly concealed a lot of that information from the public and are sort of thoroughly over Mark Zuckerberg as well. <laughs> so Facebook has a uh, an immense PR problem. It doesn't have a um, it doesn't have a a real competitor right now, but it's still got a huge PR problem. And so I think that moving towards some uh, moving towards a structure where you can say, hey, we have. We know we have a problem. We know you don't trust us. And we're going to have this independent panel that deals with these thorny questions, I think, is an interesting approach. But the core problem is if they continue to have vague standards uh, for determining vague and subjective standards for determining what kind of speech is allowable on the platform, you could put together the, the most dream team panel you can imagine. And they're still going to come up with standards that will satisfy uh, be dissatisfying to an enormous number of people and because the the problem comes that if you're going to try to ban so-called hate speech um you're going to run into a definition problem and as you run into that definition problem you're going to you're going to uh end up in constant battles on the margins over that definition of hate speech what i what i have written in the past. I, I wrote this um, when Alex Jones was banned from Facebook and, and YouTube, uh, is that I think these social media companies that are seeking to create something that approximates a marketplace of ideas would be well served by not trying to reinvent the wheel, wheel on speech standards, but instead look to our centuries of development in the First Amendment and use that as their as their guideline, use that as their sort of starting point. Now, I'm not saying that they should replicate all aspects of First Amendment jurisprudence, but using that as the starting framework, I think, is going to get them a lot further than sort of this endless battle that exists over over very nebulous and difficult to define concepts like hate speech. And applying that, for example, uh, applying a more First Amendment-centered framework and one that is relies on our centuries of development and common law 
hardly leaves people without any protection at all. So, for example, I think it would be clearly within Facebook's rights and maybe even a Facebook obligation to kick from its platform people who, um, in, you know, engage in defamation, libel, slander. Um, that in that circumstance, you know, Alex Jones would be in a, a candidate for removal on the basis of his Sandy Hook conspiracy theories alone. So there are many ways in which you can uh, create a platform that where the, the rules and regulations regarding conduct are more explicitly viewpoint neutral, uh, because the instant you begin to open up the viewpoint analysis is the instant you open up Pandora's box as Every one of these platforms, every single one of them has has understood and struggles with on a daily basis. Very interesting. Katie, David says what's important is not just the appointment procedures, but the substantive law. And he calls for a kind of First Amendment free speech imperialism, if I may, that basically Facebook <laughs> should adopt a version of the Supreme Court's uh, interpretation of the First Amendment, which says that speech can only be banned if it's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence unlike the current Facebook, Twitter, and Google standards, which allow the banning of hate speech and other speech that demeans people on the basis of group identity. Do you agree with David on the substantive standards or not? Well, I, I tend to agree with David very much on this idea that, the, you know, that these are very hard lines to draw, that whenever you try to start applying standards to carve out certain kinds of speech and you you run into these problems of how to define that um, and you inevitably run into situations of of speech on the other side for instance um, there was a law um, that was struck down by the Supreme Court in the past decade or so that would have prohibited the depiction of quote animal crush videos and uh while a lot of people were you know agreed on that this this these kinds of images served absolutely you know had no social value there were a number of animal rights groups that actually did not support the law because they wanted to be able to engage in speech uh, protesting these um, this conduct, and so and recognizing that if you apply a vague standard, you could also uh, apply it against people who were fighting against the the social harm, and or any time that you've tried the in the in, as Dave was saying, there have been centuries of the development of our Supreme Court, our First Amendment jurisprudence that. Uh, any laws that sort of, you know, challenge speech that's against, you know, has one point of view can often be used against people on the other side. So obviously that's the, you know, slippery slope problem. Um, so I think, you know, as again, as I said, I think that um, Facebook is certainly not bound by the First Amendment in terms of what speech it can or cannot have. But um, I do agree that when they have tried to, for instance, uh, police, quote, fake news or to um, to ban certain kinds of speech, it does raise a lot of uh, problems. Uh, questions and problems that I think are hard Thanks to work that. out. All right, practice. we have one final topic on this uh, First Amendment uh, tour, uh, and that is uh, WikiLeaks. Uh, in what seems to have been a cut and paste error, there was a filing in an unrelated court case that revealed 
uh, last week that the Justice Department may have charged WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. And uh, it's been trying to come up with a way to charge Assange uh, since 2010. Uh, but the Obama administration was concerned about charging Assange under the Espionage Act of 1917 because, as the Washington Post put it in 2013, there was a New York Times problem. In other words, if the government indicted Assange, it would be similarly uh, able to indict the New York Times and other news organizations who publish classified information. And until now, there's been a barrier on indictments of news organizations under the Espionage Act. David, explain to us the significance of the apparent decision to indict Assange. Is it under the Espionage Act or other other grounds for charging him? And what are the implications for press freedom moving forward? Right. I think there's a, a clear implication for press freedom if he's being indicted for publishing classified information, and that would be the sum total of the indictment. Uh, and, and there is, as a New York Times problem, uh, there's a, it's not just a New York Times problem as a practical matter, there's a New York Times problem as a uh, legal matter. I mean, there's the New York Times uh, versus the United States case from 1971 involving publication of, you know, the, the, these Pentagon papers that were highly, that were highly classified documents detailing the history of the U.S. Uh, war in Vietnam and, and the run-up to the war in Vietnam. And so the government sought to prohibit their publication, and the Supreme Court uh, blocked, uh, re, uh, refused, and uh, refused to grant prior restraint against their publication. And so, uh, essentially, what this did was create a um, obligation on the part of the government to keep its classified information classified. If it wanted, if it didn't want it to be in the public domain. It should take steps to prevent it being in public domain, but once a it can it can take steps to prevent it from being in the public domain. But once a news organization gets a hold of it, uh, as a general rule, it's going to be able to publish uh, publish it. And I think that's a a sound framework. But when it comes to WikiLeaks, there may be a lot more going on here. It would actually somewhat surprise me if the indictment was over the publication of classified information. I mean this. You know, WikiLeaks classified documents have been in the public domain for a very long time, um, going back to some of the disclosures in uh, the Obama years. So th this stuff has been out there. Um, news organizations have published it. I mean, it's just been all over the place. Um, so that would surprise me. It would not surprise me if there was evidence that WikiLeaks had participated in hacking attempts or if WikiLeaks had conspired in some ways with foreign intelligence agencies uh, to engage in clandestine activities that are uh, unlawful regardless, you know, that unlawful and don't really touch on the First Amendment at all. There's just, there are many ways in which a hostile foreign entity, particularly a hostile foreign entity that is known to be an asset of Russian intelligence, can violate U.S. law. And so it would surprise me if it boiled down to if the indictment boiled down to uh, indicting WikiLeaks for publishing classified information. If it did, it would have a, that indictment, I think, would have a hard time sticking. Thanks for that. Uh, Katie, your thoughts about why an indictment for publishing classified information would have a hard time sticking, why it would represent a sea change for the First Amendment, and why previous presidents have been reluctant to bring such indictments, as well as what you think the other charges might be. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with David that um, 
if he has been, or if WikiLeaks has been charged, Assange has been charged under the Espionage Act, that creates a huge potential problem, a huge, as David said, New York Times problem, uh, or any newspaper problem, because if he is prosecuted under a law not for actually leaking the information, so not aimed at the actual conduct that's supposed to be unlawful, but merely for publishing uh, information that he knows was obtained unlawfully. There is a whole line of cases, including the Pentagon Papers case and including another case called Bartnicki in the uh, early 2000s that holds that publication that the government may not penalize mere publication of information that's of public interest, even if that information was originally obtained unlawfully. And that is extremely important because, uh, as we've been discussing, otherwise any news organization that you know, obtains leaked information or is aware of information that has been leaked or, you know, somehow obtained, uh, which is a lot of reporting and a lot of really important reporting, would fear publicize, uh, public, publishing this information because they could be potentially subject to serious criminal uh, penalties. And for that reason, is my understanding from reading, which is why the Obama, administ Obama administration, which in fact stepped up its prosecution of leakers themselves, held off and did not pursue an Espionage Act claim against Assange for this very concern, because it is, uh, you know, if, if on the face of the Espionage Act itself, it says it is unlawful to um, publish or, you know, release information that is classified, there is no carve out for a quote, news organization. And even if there were, it is very hard to craft something like that because it brings into question what's a, quote, legitimate news organization. And I think it would be a very bad rule if the court were to say, well, it, that that kind of protection is only granted to formal news organizations because um, that would not provide a lot of, you know, bloggers and other people or just citizen journalists who want to publish things, um, the kind of protection that I think we want to have because we want this information to be out there. And I think you also have to look at this in the context of, you know, what a lot of people have criticized as a great uh, growth of overclassification of uh, Thank you so much for that. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this hugely illuminating and very rich discussion about uh, the CNN case, the Twitter case, and the Facebook Supreme Court and the uh, WikiLeaks case. As we're talking, uh, The Guardian has just reported that uh, CNN could be back in court as early as next week uh, over news reports that the Trump administration has warned that uh, Acosta's credentials are set to be suspended again when the 14-day order expires. So, uh, David, uh, first closing thoughts to you. How do you think that this CNN case will ultimately be resolved? How far up will it go? Uh, and uh, how, what will the final resolution be? On what grounds? Uh, the First Amendment or due process? And why should our listeners care about the CNN case and the future of the First Amendment? Well, I, I think ultimately the case will be res resolved in CNN's favor. I mean, I think that when you have a situation where there is such uh, overwhelming evidence of viewpoint discrimination, where you have a, 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 um, and 
an establishment of of prohibiting conduct after or a standard where you prohibit conduct after uh, the individual is engaged in the conduct rather than establishing clear viewpoint neutral guidelines before. There are just too many ways here in which uh, the Trump administration appears to be acting in an arbitrary, capricious, and and to the extent it's not arbitrary, it's quite specifically targeted on the basis of viewpoint. I I just find it difficult to believe that uh, there are five justices, if this makes it to the Supreme Court, uh, that would go for the proposition that the under these facts, under these circumstances, that uh, that the Trump administration has the ability to block Jim Acosta. Uh, now, could the administration promulgate some reasonable viewpoint neutral guidelines for behavior and apply them going forward? Yes, absolutely it could. And if a, if a uh, reporter violated reasonable viewpoint neutral guidelines for conduct and decorum going forward, I think uh, in that circumstance, a reporter would lose, but that's not where we are right now. And and I think a lot of news organizations, and this is something that's surprising to some conservatives, including Fox News, have reached that same conclusion that says, uh, look, this is, this is a, a real threat, and why should people care? Well, you know, because if you're a Trump fan, you have to realize that Trump's not always going to be president. <laughs> you have to understand and realize that there will be somebody on the other side who may not like some of your favorite reporters. That's one of the things about the First Amendment is, uh, and one of the one of the realities of free of free speech is, it almost always comes to back to bite you when you uh, uh, try to uphold a principle that says free speech for me and not for thee, or free speech for my favored speakers and not for the speakers I dislike. Um, there's, it's, it's almost like there's this, uh, constitutional law of karma. <laughs> <laughs> it, it always comes back around. And that's one thing you've got to understand. <laughs> Love it. Uh, the constitution center will enforce the constitutional law of karma, uh, <laughs> to the best of our ability. Uh, Katie, last word to you. Um, how will the CNN case eventually be resolved? How high up will it get? And why should our listeners care about the case of CNN versus Trump? Yeah, I agree with David. I think that a court, the Supreme Court and the courts in between the district court and the Supreme Court are unlikely to uphold um, sort of this post hoc rationalization or attempt to cover the real reasons why Acosta's hard pass was revoked. And I think you need to also see this within the larger pattern of President Trump and his administration of seeking to exclude critical voices from public forums, whether it's the press conf- White House press conferences, where I think you need to take into account both the reporter's own free speech rights to engage in speech and to engage in news gathering as a member of the press, but also to think of the press and remember that they serve an important function in our democracy of uh, being a representative for the public or news gathering for the purpose of providing information to the public. And it would be bad, not just for CNN, but for the public if reporters aren't allowed to ask challenging questions at White House press conferences without fear of retaliation. And similarly, in our case against the president uh, for blocking people on Twitter, we think that there are sort of two harms. There's the harm to the individuals who are blocked by the president, and it wasn't just the seven individuals, but 
many people from around the country who I will note have subsequently been unblocked after the court's decision. But it's the harm to those people to make their replies. But it's also a harm to the listeners who want to hear political discourse and hear from people from all over the political spectrum. And just as if you were in a town hall and you tell someone to sit down because you don't like what they're having to what they have to say, you're hurting their First Amendment rights, but you're also hurting the rights of the other community members to hear from people who are critical. Thank you so much, Katie Fallow and David French, for an illuminating, deep, uh, and really educational discussion about a series of very current First Amendment issues. You have reminded us that although uh, thoughtful people of different perspectives can disagree about the application of particular First Amendment standards, the standards themselves unite us and are a shining beacon for freedom that is truly inspiring. Katie, David, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Today's show was engineered by Kevin Kilburn and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Jackie McDermott. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Recommend the show to your friends and colleagues and check out our companion podcast, Live at America's Town Hall. We have the most incredible constitutional conversations here at the Constitution Center every week. Just last week was a wonderful discussion of Hamilton, the musical, and the law with an amazing series of guests. And you can hear all of those programs on the Live at America's Town Hall podcast. Check it out, I bet and hope you will learn from it. And always remember, when you wake and when you sleep, as you prepare for Thanksgiving, uh, when all of us have so much to be grateful for, and especially the gratitude for the ability to learn and to enlighten ourselves by hearing thoughtful, intelligent arguments on all sides of our contested national debate so that we can cultivate our faculties of reason. Uh, Express your gratitude, please, Uh, by joining the National Constitution Center and becoming part of the family of learners around the country that have the privilege of uniting in reason. Isaiah the prophet said, come let us reason together. And the great Louis Brandeis was so inspired by those words. By listening to this podcast, you are part of the community of reasoned citizens. And I want you to express your appreciation for that by making the National Constitution Center's work possible. Check us out at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. And on behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.